if you're going to take a chance on somebody, why wouldn't you take a chance on somebody who already works here? We have a proof point that you can do that, that you can bring in people from the organization who don't have the same skill set um, and, and make them successful. And I think that narrative is so critical for where we are at right now. If you talk about the blah, 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 great resignation, la, 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 la. Like, I think that these are things that are really important. I, I think too, it did two things for us. Like when everyone was struggling to rebuild their recruiting team, ours was already there. We, they were, they were still in the building, right? We just started to bring them back. And two, I think it put a completely different lens on that internal mobility conversation across the whole company. And so we don't have managers blocking internal moves. We we have people who know that the best thing for Credit Karma as the business is to make sure that people stay at Credit Karma and find the career path thereafter, not just working on so-and-so's team. That was Credit Karma Chief People, Places, and Publicity Officer Colleen McCreary and Head of Global Talent Acquisition Ashley Anderson. And in this episode, a first in redefining HR, where I had an opportunity to sit down with a CPO and the head of TA together, we're going to talk about their work at Credit Karma and more specifically, alternatives to layoffs. Especially in tech these days, we're seeing lots of layoffs and reductions, and that may not always be the best way. And they're going to share some stories and examples of how they thought differently about redeploying and reskilling talent within in order to avoid layoffs. And so we'll be right back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. It's time to let go of the past perceptions of HR. Amplify is a new model of agency design from the ground up to support business and people leaders navigate the new world of work. We do that through two platforms. Our HR executive search practice is a new model of agency that moves away from traditional transactional search models with our flat fee pricing structure and advisory on the front and back end to help our clients attract and retain transformational people leaders. Our Amplify Academy is a unique platform to support continuous learning and build readiness, capability, and global networks for today's HR practitioners and leaders through the AI Learning Lab, peer learning cohort programs, community, and a range of resources to support their growth. You can learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Redefining HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt. And today is a pretty special podcast. I mean, they're all special, but this is special because it is a first. I have an opportunity to sit down with a chief people officer and a head of TA together and talk about their relationship and their work and how they operate. And so I'm really excited to be joined by Colleen McCreary. She is the Chief People, Places, and Publicity Officer at Credit Karma, and Ashley Anderson, who is the Global Head of TA. So uh, we always kind of open with an intro, so I will turn it over to both of you. And Ashley, uh, I'll hit you up first. If you could just give a, a quick intro for the audience, and then I'll come over to Colleen. Sure, so um, thanks for having us on. This is gonna be a fun discussion. Um, I have been at Credit Karma a little over four and a half years, or actually right about that right now. Uh, prior to that, I've spent my entire career in tech, actually working for companies on the West Coast for uh, uh, all of those years uh, from the East Coast, which has been an interesting experience. And Colleen and I have been working together on and off since the 90s, which my daughter is now calling the late 1900s, which hurts my feelings. Yeah, that stings a little bit. <laughs> And uh, Colleen, how about you? 
Sure. So I'm Colleen McCreary and um, I run the what we call the 3P organization, as you said. So uh, people, places, and then all of our comms, so internal, external comms, uh, social media, PR, uh, and events here at Credit Karma. I've been here uh, close to five years. Uh, before that, I've, I've kind of had a long history of, you know, being a, a, a head of people, uh, you know, working with companies, you know, through two acquisitions, uh, including this one at Credit Karma, and then through, you know, two IPOs. And um, I consider myself kind of an old lady <laughs> at this point in HR. I've been in tech for over 25 years. And, uh, you know, I like to to really talk about the opportunities we have in tech, but then also some of the challenges. Um, and as, as Ashley mentioned, we've been working together since the 90s. Um, we both kind of started our corporate careers at Microsoft uh, back then. Yeah. Well, really interesting. I feel like, uh, you know, Backstreet Boys were on top when you first started working together and, uh, and now they're doing reunion tours. So uh, that is a very yes. interesting dynamic. Yes. Um, you know, let's talk, I think the role between a chief people officer, and I know you oversee a 3P organization, so I'll, I'll use kind of CPO as a catch-all for the person running the HR function, uh, and the head of TA is incredibly important. It's probably one of the mo most important relationships within the, the HR organization. And, you know, especially over the last 18 months, for a lot of organizations, that's been a roller coaster ride. You know, we, we couldn't hire fast enough for over a year, it felt like. And then all of a sudden, the brakes get pumped in a lot of organizations and, you know, they start tightening down on hiring and even having layoffs, as we've seen, especially in tech. And I know we'll talk more about that in the podcast, but I'd love to get both your perspectives. And, and Colleen, I want to start with you on this one. When you think about the, the dynamic and the relationship between uh, a CPO and their head of TO, TA, what, what does that mean to you? To describe that relationship from your perspective. Yeah, well, I think certainly for many companies, you know, people will say talent is our, our number one lifeblood. It's the thing that matters the most. Certainly in, in most places, it's your most expensive cost. Um, and so, and there's a huge amount of emphasis, unfortunately, in my opinion, sometimes uh, incorrectly on the bringing people in, sometimes more emphasis on that than what you do when those people get there, which, you know, I, I think is problematic. But because there's so much attention um, on talent acquisition, the recruiting part of the equation, I, you know, it's a very hero to zero, uh, role. So, you know, in my opinion, it is one of those things that can help you as a CPO establish credibility really quickly. Um, and also, um, you know, sort of bring metrics and alignment to companies that haven't had it because, you know, recruiting in my opinion is really math, uh, at the end of the day in a lot of ways. Uh, and so you have to have like a unique, trust almost more so than any other, uh, you know, center of excellence in the HR space because it is so high profile, because it is so visible. And it is one of those things that people will talk about externally as well as internally, like how your brand is and who you are and, and how you treat talent will ultimately be connected to sort of how they are recruited and how you, how you do recruiting. So, you know, I think it's incredibly important. I think it's, um, somebody that you have to have this deep, immense amount of trust with. Um, and I think, you know, it also really depends on the company. But, you know, in my case, I came out of recruiting. So even more so, I feel like I need someone who has a strong point of view to, you know, hit back on me when I when I think I know exactly the answer, but I'm not actually in that day to day job. And so um, I do I do think it's a critical skill. And if you don't come out of recruiting, I think as a CPO, 
it is even more critical that you find the right person who has the expertise that you can rely on to stake your career and, and, and oftentimes, you know, sort of your own longevity on that person and their ability to represent uh, on that front end of the process. Yeah, I mean, that's such an interesting point because you're right. I think, you know, TA and your ability to hire and, and the caliber of talent you're able to bring to the organization is often one of the biggest barometers that leadership uh, across the organization and certainly hiring managers look at as to whether they view HR as successful or not. And like, obviously, there's so many other facets to HR, but that's by far the most visible um, and, and often the most scrutinized as well. And so, Ashley, I want to kind of come over to you now to get some of your perspective on the same take, because I think that you know, even the highest performing TA teams are going to have hiring managers in those organizations that feel like they can't hire fast enough. They can't find the right people. They can't find the right pipelines of talent. Like it could often be a very thankless job where you're, you know, invisible or in trouble. And I'd love to get your perspective, particularly, obviously, I know you have deep history uh, with Colleen, but how do you, when you think about the, the importance of that dynamic of that relationship between a head of TA and a CPO, what does that look like from your perspective? Yeah, so I think the trust part, obviously, she already hit on, which is just super critical to the relationship that the head of TA would have with their CPO. Um, with that, obviously, comes the transparency that you need between the two people. There, there is so much information that is critical to the success of TA that maybe some people officers would not feel comfortable sharing. But I think that we have this unique relationship where there's so much sausage making that I'm privy to because it is critical to the success of us building diverse and scalable teams at Credit Karma. Um, so Colleen is Colleen and I are constantly in contact. It is every day, um, you know, and if it's if it's not during the day, it might be early her morning or late my night. Like there's just so much communication back and forth uh, that's important because things do change so quickly, especially in tech at a startup. And yeah, we're like a 16 year old startup, but still operate that way. Um, so I think that's super important. But ultimately, the uh, the power like her empowerment of me giving me a voice at the table, at, at the C-level exec table, has been really critical to my success. And her uh, backing me up when I say no. Uh, we like to say at Credit Karma, this is not Burger King, you do not get it your way. And she has allowed me to say that to the C-team and everyone throughout the organization. Um, you know, this is only going to work if you let us be the experts. And so she has empowered us to operate that way. You know, no is a very important and powerful word, word um, especially I think in TA, because there's no shortage of requests, uh, no matter how unrealistic at times they might be. And if you're not in an environment where you're empowered to push back and be like, we can't deliver on that. And here's why, or if you really want us to deliver on that, we're going to need X in order to meet those goals. And you can put dollars around that. I think it, it makes it, uh, you know, much harder to be able to, to be a successful TA leader in an environment where you're not empowered in that way. Um, obviously, you two have a lot of history. Uh, you know, Colleen, I think you have the interesting dynamic, as you mentioned, uh, coming from TA yourself. So clearly having some uh, views and opinions towards, uh, towards the function. Uh, I imagine there's times certainly where you're going to agree and there's going to be times when you disagree. And so, Ashley, I'm curious, like, <laughs> when was the last time the two of you disagreed and how did you kind of uh, resolve that on your end? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, we we see things um, the same, and and but not from the, the same vantage point, the same lens, right? But usually we're we're on the same page, and there are definitely moments that where we have not been. And Colleen and I, because of the trust and transparency, have the ability to have really hard conversations with each other in both directions. And I think that it is why we are so successful as a team, is because we are super honest with each other, like hey, I don't think you're thinking about this right. Can I help you understand from my vantage point, my perspective? Let me give you the data that supports my position. And, you know, it might take her a day or two or it might take me a day or two, but usually we end up on the same page because we listen to the data. I was going to say, I saw that question and, you know, her, hear you say it. And it was it was hard to think of something that wasn't resolved very quickly um, the one area I can think of really is around kind of usually budget related things. So like tools and technology spend and what tools and technology and what's useful. And, and also even I think on the metrics where I think my job is to push a little bit, you know, like what are the average hires per month that a recruiter can do. And, um, and knowing that I would get asked those, those sort of same questions by my boss and making sure we're running um, you know, efficiently and, and, and spending money in the right ways. And that is where I'm not in the details. I am not in the day-to-day. I don't actually know how her entire org is always operating. And so sometimes it takes, hey, me saying, I don't understand that. That feels like a lot of, usually it's like, that's too much, or I don't understand why we would need that, or don't they already have this, or those kinds of things. And her to come back with the data of, um, hey, actually, this is actually how it's working. You're not in. You're not seeing it, or this is this is actually blocking us in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, and then you know coming to an agreement as to how we're going to execute across that, what we're going to do. I think having a shared experience. We haven't worked together the entire history. We've we've both been at different companies at different times and did different things and have had different roles uh, together. Um, but the point that we both look at talent from the same lens where I know how hard it is to find great talent. I know how hard it is to get those folks in the door. I know what it's like to be on the line and not be able to have the highest comp to offer a candidate. Um, I also know what the, what will happen if we screw that up and what, you know, sort of the downstream effects of that. But because we have a shorthand and an alignment around that vision and appreciation, you know, sort of for your, what role each of us are in, I think that that really goes a long way. You know, you kind of touched on earlier on in the conversation around, um, you know, just the, this bit of a whiplash we've seen in the market, especially from a recruiting perspective. Um, and I think, you know, companies were just on fire and couldn't hire fast enough for over a year. And then pretty suddenly, like almost jarringly suddenly, that stopped. And then for many companies that went in the other direction. And so I'd love to get, you know, you, you both, uh, you know, sit on, on similar, but in some ways different sides of this in terms of the constituents that you're having to manage through this downshift where Colleen, you know, you're working closely with the executives and trying to make sure that your C-suite peers are aligned on any changes that you may be making based on broader macro economic trends. And, you know, Ashley, your team is much more close to the hiring managers uh, and obviously the recruiters and kind of that's a two-sided market in a way where you're managing expectations and emotions and even fear and uncertainty on both of those sides based on tightening things a little bit. So Colleen, I'd love to get your perspective on this first and then Ashley, I'll come to you. How do you, you know, how do you think about 
managing kind of the the expectations or the or the shifting expectations and alignment amongst your executive team, you know, when you're moving from a faster paced hiring environment to a, you know, slower or even kind of holding pattern hiring environment? Yeah, I think this is also where experience really helps um, because usually the first thing, well, there are two things that I think of. Number one is I hope to be in front of that train if you're going to have to make a quick turn and turn something off um, for, for, for good or for bad, right? So I want to know if, Hey, if, if all of a sudden we have a bunch of headwinds in the business and we're and we're not going to be able to hire as much, um, I'd like to be able to, to to pull the brake sooner so we're not bringing in people, which would cause potentially a downstream of having to let people go, which is you know philosophically one of the worst things I think you you do in an organization. Um, so there's there's certainly that lever, and then the second one is the understanding the communication and what the message will will be in the organization once you do have to pull a break like that and and slow or stop hiring altogether. And so, you know, one of the first things I think about is at the management team level is we're not going to talk about this with anybody until we're clear on the, the, you know, sort of the clarity of what we're deciding, the context of what it is, and then, you know, what is our messaging plan throughout the org um, and then so that recruiting doesn't become the messenger of that with hiring managers, because that's what I see at a lot of companies is that recruiting ends up hearing, Hey, we just closed these jobs. The hiring managers going to them and saying like, Hey, where are, where's the progress here? And then the, you know, and then the recruiter ends up on being the messenger back to be like, well, I was told to close these jobs. They don't know why they haven't been giving in context. And then you end up in this rumor mill situation and no one wants to put a recruiter you know, or at least I don't want to put a recruiter into that situation. It's not their role to do that. That's not what they're there for. Um, and I don't want Ashley to be in that situation where she is having to to manage through all of that. So, you know, I think if I hadn't been seen this, you know, narrative play out a number of times, I may not be as sensitive to it. And also if I hadn't been, I think on the line earlier on in my career where that was happening to me, where I felt like I was having to say to a manager, like, actually, we're not, I've been told we're not hiring for that anymore. So you need to go talk to your manager, you know? So, um, so I think there's a a huge amount of air cover and context that you can do when you're at the table with the rest of your executive team to gain alignment on even the comms and the messaging and the why, so that that is consistent throughout your org. Yeah. You know, I think every recruiter, myself included, listening to that uh, overview is probably recoiling a little bit because we still carry the scars of having to be that messenger at one point in our careers. And uh, that is a a shitty place to be. Um, So, you know, I I appreciate that. You know, Ashley, from your perspective, like, how do you manage it? Because you're, you're, you're kind of leading through two sides of that with both the hiring managers and helping kind of reset their expectations, but also the recruiters who, again, when you move into a kind of hiring freeze environment, you know, radars go up. People are like, okay, what is this going to mean for, you know, me and my role in, in my future? And as we've seen with a lot of the tech layoffs uh, over the last six months, you know, that the TA teams have been hit pretty hard by those. So how do you approach that? Um, yeah, I mean, thankfully, we do have leaders that ensure that that messaging does not have to come from myself or any one of the leaders on my own team. Um, and, and that is a gift because like you just said, right, we all have PTSD from having to be that person. Um, but, but for us, I think as we kind of 
go through the roller coaster that we've been on the last couple of years, um, it all comes down to data and comms, right? Like Colleen likes to say it's the three C's, clarity, context, and communication. And I think as long as we stay true to those things with our managers and our recruiters, um, everything ends up being okay. Um, additionally, like in terms of navigating those conversations, as, as Colleen and I have alluded to, we are very data-driven at Credit Karma um, on the talent side. We have, I think, over 75 custom dashboards that talk through like any scenario, any pipeline, you know, where we are for the fiscal year. Um, and we're able to show that data with context to not just the leaders, but the line managers to help them understand where we are in process and what's happening with their specific roles. Uh, so there's not questions. There's not this like, well, hey, what's happening with, with uh, my role? Why aren't you working on this? Or why am I not seeing candidates? We're able to show the big picture and not just their own picture, but, but the wider uh, context uh, across the business really easily. And, and Colleen, I want to come back to you for a moment because I think you mentioned your experience has allowed you to kind of get to a place where, as you mentioned, you can kind of get ahead of the train um, when that's coming and hopefully ahead things off before you get to a layoff place. And I think when you when you look at some of the layoffs we've seen in tech uh, over the last six months, you know, a lot of them, quite frankly, seem pretty glaringly because of overhiring, um, right? Companies just, you know, yeah, VC money was pouring into organizations. You couldn't hire fast enough. You couldn't. So I think that they weren't necessarily being very strategic with their headcount plans and growth plans and that now they're paying for it. And I'm, I'd love to get your perspective. Like there's a lot of people who are in, heads of people roles now, perhaps for the first time, um, you know, they don't have that same depth of experience as you do to kind of, you know, know what the signs might be uh, to be able to kind of push back and say, do we really need to staff this in this way? What advice do you have for maybe earlier career heads of people to ensure that they're in a position to kind of, you know, advise their CEOs and C-suite, um, you know, teams to be hiring uh, smart, and, and, and making sure that you're not kind of getting over the skis, so to speak, and being in a position where if you have any economic headwinds, you know, now you're just going to have to immediately go to a place of layoffs. Yeah, I think there's actually even another point about what happens when you overhire um, is that you lose people very quickly who who join and then it's not exactly what they thought they were joining for. Maybe the role isn't as, you know, as as big as they were thought. Maybe they just are not having a great onboarding experience. Maybe they're they're sitting around bored for a few weeks because people don't know what to do with them. They just hired resources. So I think there's actually a whole host of reasons why to be thoughtful um, around how you're, you know, sort of your hiring plan and you know, I think one of the things is to align on a couple principles to, you know, to when you're making the hiring plan or, and, and, you know, having a really tight partnership with both your CEO on those things, as well as your head of finance, your CFO, whoever that is, whoever's building that model um, is incredibly important. And, and that even includes recruiting. So, you know, Ashley is right in with the conversations with me when I'm sitting and looking at, you know, our plan for the next year, which, you know, if you're at a startup, maybe your plan is for the next two months. God love you if you have a plan for the year. So I give a lot of grace there. Um, but she's with me saying like, hey, we can deliver that. We can't deliver that. This is what we need to add for recruiting to make that possible. Um, this is this is the downstream effect on all of the other groups when it comes to onboarding. This is probably what we can absorb. And, you know, one of the principles we had established was that no more than a third of our hires should be new at any one time. Like that was just a, 
you know, a tent pole of a principle we had established. You know, we also have a principle where we don't want to ever have to do layoffs. So everybody is clear on that. Um, our CEO talks about it. Like that is um, an important nuance. And then, you know, my third piece is that retention is almost more important than recruiting. So if you have bad attrition on your team, we're not giving you more people. Like we're just not going to do that. And, and, and we sort of gained alignment around those principles to begin with. So as we are building the plan, and then I think there is a, for companies who have, you know, most companies, even if they're a little smart startup do have like, here's how we're doing on revenue. Here's our PL. This is what it's looking like. And just starting to get a sense of where things are going. And that that's the one thing over the last, I'd say, three to six months that I'm, I don't understand with a lot of these companies that why they weren't starting to feel it um, and weren't pulling the brakes. I mean, I have been nervous about those things for a long time and just saying like, hey, and our business has done exceptionally well. Uh, but even I was like, you know, I'm just starting to get a whiff of like, it sounds like, hey, this partner is making some changes. We're starting to hear this more broadly around potentially a recession. Like, I, I think, you know, you have to always have your ears and eyes open. And it's hard because sometimes that's not your role. That's not what you're there for. But you should be the person saying like, hey, do we know what all these people are going to be doing? Do we know what this is going to look like six months from now? Can we get by without adding those resources? Um, or you know, I think the other piece is what are your tools that you have in place to reprioritize hiring, you know, and does that mean that everybody's gotten, as Ashley would say, their Halloween candy all at once and they, they are like eating it all at the same time? Are we spreading Halloween candy throughout the year as we think we can hire and as we think we can onboard? And, and then also are we being, you know, incredibly smart around which hires need to come in the door first um, versus like letting every manager sort of decide uh, on their own who they can just shove through the door. As an HR practitioner navigating the new world of work, your ability to learn, connect with resources, and build your global peer community is essential to your success. That's why I launched the Amplify Academy. The Amplify Academy was built from the ground up to help HR practitioners and people leaders efficiently and effectively connect with the diverse learning needs and resources for today and tomorrow. There are three components to the Academy. The Learning Lab is an AI learning platform that includes a range of courses, resources, templates, content, and more to support the learning needs around modern HR practices for today and tomorrow. The Amplify Academy Slack community is designed to help you build your global network equity and peer set with practitioners around the world who share your vision for progressive HR practices. And the Amplify Academy cohorts are four-week immersive peer learning programs designed to help people leaders build the skills and network they need to succeed as an HR leader in today's environment. Cohort students also learn from world-class people leaders from Katie Burke, Pat Waters, Claude Silver, Brian Power, AJ Thomas, and so many more. Want to supercharge your people team? Be sure to check out the Academy for Teams product, which is designed to give you and your people teams access to over 400 resources, the full community, and more across the Amplify Academy. Learn more at amplifytalent.com slash academy. Now, back to the show. 
Yeah, that's an important point because I think, you know, in the context of for most hiring managers, like their job is your most important job. Right. That's the one that they need to have. <laughs> but that right? might is, not you know, be I'm the sure, company's uh, yeah. most important job. I mean, that actually, <laughs> no, no, it's, it often yeah, isn't. But, I mean, right, it's like they, uh, you know, that that's, I think having that top-down alignment, right, where everybody is kind of uh, on the same page around the priorities and the roles and perhaps the cascading nature of when those hires have to happen as opposed to somebody saying, uh, hey, it's now 2022. I have a hundred jobs in my headcount plan. Uh, I want all my candy in Q1. Uh, that's not healthy or realistic. Also, like your dentist is going to be all over you with that. So um, I want to talk about an initiative that uh, I know you both were involved with. And so this question will be for both of you. Uh, but, you know, early in the pandemic, when a lot of companies were having layoffs, uh, understandably so, with what we were facing. Um, you know, you mentioned one of your kind of you know core tent poles is is not having layoffs, and you approach things differently within the organization so that you weren't in that position. And I'd love for you to just shed more light on that. And I will kind of open this up to either of you because I'm sure you both have your own kind of perspective on how you managed and executed it. But like basically, as an alternative to layoffs. What can people do? Yeah. How about, Ashley, I'll start with sort of laying some context of what happened, and then you can sort of speak to what we ended up doing. So um, Lars has heard me talk about this, you know, in some other settings, and, I, and we've now written and it's been talked about. But, in, you know, in early 2020, every, you know, the, the year that no one expected, um, we actually were going through an acquisition process at the beginning of 2020, which I did. And I had told my team things might get bumpy this year, uh, which I'm now forbidden forever using the word bumpy at work again. Um, and that was in sort of January because I knew this acquisition was sort of brewing. And so, you know, at the end of February, we announced Credit Karma was going to be acquired, but we were going to have, uh, which turned into almost a year of a wait to go through an antitrust review um, so we had a lot of ambiguity right off the bat. And then, um, you know, like every other company, we sent everybody home at the beginning of March due to COVID safety concerns. And within two weeks, we were able to start to see very quickly that in our business, um, our, our, you know, our, our partners were tightening, people were not going to be lending, like how we got made, how we got paid and how we made money was changing. And within six weeks, we had our revenue had dropped 70%. Now, mind you, the reason I think this context is important is because the pressure from our board at that point in time with this acquisition pending, a lot of money on the line um, for them and their uh, you know, investors and um, if this deal would happen or not and what would happen without that revenue and, and with the cost you know, of, of doing business, what did that look like? I mean, it was scary and, you know, thankfully, you know, Ken, uh, our founder and CEO, uh, who also was the biggest shareholder at the time. So that's helpful. You know, he and I had a line very quickly on like, if there's, we're going to, if there's any way that we can get out of doing layoffs, that was our, our first choice. And I will tell you the a pressure from our board at that time was immense and how many layoffs we needed to do and what percentage of the org and, and I also was on a management team, Ken included, who had never been through that before. Like they had been at companies that did layoffs, but they were never the decision makers. And I unfortunately had and, you know, really talked about the weight of that, what it did to your culture, what it did to the organization. And, you know, we're a company whose mission is to help people make financial progress. You can't think of anything worse than randomly taking away somebody's job. So, you know, I think we had some tools in our toolkit around principles and beliefs and why we were here 
that enabled me with Ken to go into the board meeting around this topic and say, here's our, here's another plan. So we worked through uh, a different plan around pay cuts and how deep the pay cuts would be and, and how we were going to, to get by um, and buy us some time, frankly, is what we were looking for. So we were buying uh, time. We also were a profitable company. So it's good and bad. On the one hand, we had money in the bank, so we didn't have to worry about not making payroll and things like that, that I think are pretty drastic. And excuse, you know, I think that's a good reason why you may have to do a layoff of that. We can't pay people. That is problematic. Um, but we also were burning through that cash then. So we were literally burning through all these investors' own money to keep us operating and running. So, you know, getting that alignment up front, deciding this is the way we wanted to go, and then basically guilting and building those board members into doing what we wanted. Um, because the ar- the argument was like, we thought that, you know, Intuit that was buying us, part of the reason they were buying us is because we had all these amazing people who built these technologies and this business. So, you know, what would be left of this if, you know, if we had uh, laid people off? So, uh, so we made that call in about six weeks time. We told employees, Hey, this is the date. We're going to let you know what's going to happen. There was certainly a lot of crazy ambiguity going on. Um, the other thing I, you know, sort of had aligned on up front before I turned it over to Ashley is that, you know, if there are people who didn't want to be with us, we had, I had always, I continue to say this, like you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. And if you don't want to be here, you know, you should go, you should go find your, find your mojo somewhere, wherever that is. If they were not, if, if we're not that for you. That's okay. That's great. You should, you should just go do that. And I said, you know, this might be a time where we should incent some people. Like if they don't want to write out the ambiguity, it just sucks when people are like dropping off over time and quitting. So we'd rather take all that heat at once. So we sort of said like, Hey, well, one of the things we want to do is we're going to do pay cuts and then we're going to incent people to quit over this like three week time, make the call now um, and do that. But then we had still, we were turning off recruiting. We were turning off a lot of our paid marketing. So we had close to a hundred employees who weren't going to have anything to do. So that's where Ashley kind of steps in and takes over. Yeah. So um, obviously she comes to me, says we're going to prioritize people over profit, which as you know, Lars being in recruiting, like, you can't hear anything better um, because generally speaking, we're always the first to go if you're not hiring. So um, I spent probably about eight weeks with a giant Tetris board and I had gone out into the business. And I mean, literally every single vertical, every horizontal to talk to leaders and say like, hey, what are the projects that are still going to be impactful and meaningful to our members What's the work streams that we can put people on? Tell me what we need to get done. Let me then go back and play matchmaker with these hundred people that we need to find new roles. And so I dug into everyone's background, uh, looked at resumes, looked at feedback in our ETS, uh, talked to their HR business partner about kind of how they were doing, what their interests were outside of their you know day-to-day job. And then it was literally like an if, then, then who, like a lot of just decisions. Like if this person goes to this role, then this person has to go here. And so it was, it was just an insane eight weeks. I don't think that I have ever felt better about work that I've done or a company that I've worked for than I did in that moment um, because we were saving people's livelihoods. And, and, you know, a lot of these folks were not going to be people who could leave Credit Karma and find another job the next day um, because a lot of these roles were things, um, you know, business lines that weren't happening elsewhere either. So 
Um, it was it was a lot of sleepless nights, worrying about was was I putting the right person in the right place, um, and ultimately, I think we did an incredible job. Um, I told my team, it was like our last all team meeting before everyone went off into their new assignments. And I said, like, look, I've been doing this for 25 years. My dad has been trying to talk me out of doing recruiting for 25 years. This is the exact reason why, Um, you know, take this, take these next few months and figure out if this is something that you want to go do. Is this, is this your moment to kind of take a different path? And I am happy to say that a handful of people that we redeployed are still in those new jobs and they've been there a couple of years. Um, now, you know, like summer came, it was time to kind of get the, the little engine that could back together. Um, we were starting to do some hiring. We brought some folks back and then, you know, I guess uh, when November hit, most of the recruiting team that had been redistrib- uh, redistributed came back, but um, it was just an incredible moment. I've never been more proud of anything. Yeah, I mean, it's such a great case study, I think, in in alternatives to layoffs, right? Like there are choices. There are different decisions that you can make. And like, yeah, it, it's painful. Like it, it, all the decisions are painful. Like what might suck less for your employees, for your organization, for your bottom line, and for the long-term health of your company? Because I think also often layoffs are short-term remedies. And they're, they're executed in that way without much consideration towards the longer term, you know, brand hit, uh, you know, employee lifestyle hit. I mean, just all the things that kind of come with that. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate you you sharing that. And hopefully some of the audience out there who, you know, may find themselves in a similar situation, hopefully not. Um, but if they do, you know, maybe they have a case study that they can reference to try to you know, steer the organization in a different way. Lars, I just want to add one thing because I think it's important if you're the chief people officer and you're listening to this, this is the best growth, career growth story we've ever had. I mean, there are very few times in a employee's life that they can just sometimes get to try something out that they really wanted to try and get paid for it. And, you know, we all talk about, you know, career growth is important and, oh, you can move around and that's a, you know, benefit of being at bigger companies and, oh, maybe you can, you can, you know, change your career path, go get your MBA, change your career path. But, you know, finally have a company where it's not just one or two people out of, you know, thousands that get a chance to do something new, but, you know, literally at the time, like 10, 15% of our organization was all of a sudden on a new career path. Like, it, you just can't bring that on. And the amount of empathy that it created as well for people on, hey, it's really hard to join new teams, even if I've been here. Wow, should we rethink how we do that? Or, oh, man, that team, I had no idea how hard their jobs were. I had no idea how hard it was to be in member support um, and answer you know, member questions and those kinds. Of, I mean, legal. Oh, I didn't realize like how many things went through legal. Like The amount of empathy it created in the organization was really pretty, uh, pretty incredible. And I think from an HR perspective, there's also all of that because now Ashley can lean in on, hey, you sh- if you're going to take a chance on somebody, why wouldn't you take a chance on somebody who already works here? We have a proof point that you can do that, that you can bring in people from the organization who don't have the same skill set um, and, and make them successful. And I think that narrative is so critical for where we are at right now. If you talk about the blah, 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 great resignation, la, 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 la. Like, I think that these are things that, that are really important. And this is why I get so angry. Lars, you've seen me post on this a few times on LinkedIn and on Twitter, especially with larger companies, huge, huge companies. They could just put in 
a little bit of effort, just a little bit of extra effort uh, and potentially do some of this matchmaking that Ashley was talking about instead of, you know, just having this is my checklist and my process and we and we did it legally. So it's all fine. Um, and, move, you know, and now we're going to go hire another 10,000 people. I, I think, too, it did two things for us. Like when everyone was struggling to rebuild their recruiting team, ours was already there. We they were they were still in the building. Right. We just started to bring them back. And two, I think it put a completely different lens on that internal mobility conversation across the whole company. And so we don't have managers blocking internal moves. We we have people who know that the best thing for Credit Karma as the business is to make sure that people stay at Credit Karma and find the career path thereafter, not just working on so-and-so's team. So I I think it did two critical things to help us spring back into action super fast. Yeah, I mean, look, that's a huge unlock. When you can change managers' perspectives in that way, um, because I think people do tend to be proprietary about talent, right? Like, oh, I just I've spent so long trying to find this person, I finally have them, and now six months later they're gonna they're gonna leave and I have to do it all over again. I think that that's you know a common response you get from managers, and so I think experiencing what they've experienced there um, just you know uh, you know unwires that thinking and wires it a different way that's much more productive for both the organization and the employees who have the ability to have more mobility. Uh, within the organization. So um, I really appreciate both of you making time to come on the podcast to share uh, your roles, your relationship. Uh, We're going to end in this way. It's a fun way. We usually do a lightning round. We're not going to do a lightning round. I'm going to give you both the floor to say one nice thing about the other person. And uh, Colleen, I'm going to let you go first. Oh, I love this. Um, Well, I worry that someone's going to try and steal her from me, but I think we've done pretty good together over the years. You know, (laughs) Ashley, um, I have gotten to see her grow so much over the last 20 plus years and her kind heart and caring self. I mean, I think are the things that her team love about working for her. Every business that she's ever worked in, she's been one of the most well-loved leaders at those companies, and and people have always followed her for that. And I, um, I just love the passion that she brings to this profession, um, and the 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 heart that she brings every day with it. No, oh, well, now you're going to make me cry. Um, okay, before you cry, uh, you have to answer the same question and say something nice about Colleen. Actually, you can cry while you're saying it if you want. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hold, I'm not gonna manipulate your emotions. You react in any way you need to react. But I will also ask you to say something nice about Colleen. Uh, Colleen knows this. I would follow her anywhere. I have followed her multiple times, and I do it because she is a maverick and a nonconformist, and. She bring, brings like incredible business acumen to the people function that I think is lacking in so many companies. I think, you know, they see people as like the HR lady and that is not her. She is an operating officer because of her business acumen. Um, that's who she is. That's why, like I said, I'll go anywhere with her. Well, I really appreciate you both making time. I love ending on that, uh, you know, a little love fest on the high note. Uh, and I just appreciate both of you. Uh, working the way you are, joining the podcast and sharing your story, but also giving this really important example of how companies can think about having kind of cost control measures that don't necessarily result in laying people off. There are other are other ways you can approach this. And so thanks so much for illuminating that for me and, uh, and all the audience. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Lars. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. 
For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.